Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey everyone, it's Anne here for a podcast and I have with me today, Dr. Katrina Mitchell. Hey Katrina, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Hey, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone who's listening? Sure. Um, I'm a breast surgical oncologist in Albuquerque, New Mexico and a board certified lactation consultant and I treat a lot of breastfeeding complications and have a special interest in postpartum and pregnancy-associated breast cancer. So, Yeah, and you're super unique because I think you were the first IBCLC breast surgeon in the country, right? I don't know. I don't think they're ever going to – I'll ever – I'd have to, like, search some database that isn't um, – that isn't really accessible because of privacy issues. So right, maybe, right. maybe if anyone else out there could identify herself. We'd yeah, have we, I think you can put your colleague. flag there for now on that territory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I want to start with uh, your first article. You're going to talk about uh, breast cancer and something molecular and breastfeeding, right? Yes. So this is a heavy-duty basic science article, but it's really, really interesting. So um, this is from um, Iran that was published in the Journal of Cell Biology. The title is Breast Cancer-Linked LNC RNA, which is a um, long non-coding RNA. ULNR, that's the name of the RNA, is upregulated in the breast of healthy women with lack or short duration of breastfeeding. So the main purpose of this article was to examine some of the molecular mechanisms behind the relationship between a short duration of breastfeeding and the risk of breast cancer. So we know epidemiologically that longer durations of breastfeeding reduce the risk of breast cancer, but we still have a long way to go with the understanding of the molecular reasons why. So this kind of basic science research is leading us in that direction. It's really, really interesting. So these authors took 98 cancer-free women who had undergone cosmetic mammoplasty. Um, And just for people in terms of terminology, uh, cosmetic mammoplasty, so I assume these women underwent an augmentation mammoplasty. That's usually implied in the term mammoplasty because if it's a breast reduction, they're going to call it a reduction mammoplasty. And then just in terms of other terminology for people, a mastopexy is a breast lift. So in any case, um, these women had undergone cosmetic uh, mammoplasty at several surgery centers in the um, Tehran, am I saying that correctly, province um, between 2013 and 2016. And they took samples of breast tissue from these women who were all consented for this study. They also collected reproductive related characteristics of the subject. Um, which are all the things we collect in our breast cancer patients as well, which include age, breastfeeding history and duration, age at menarche, um, menopausal status and age at menopause, um, age at the first full-term pregnancy, history of oral contraceptive use or other hormone use. They also collected obesity data, and they did collect um, data about family history of breast cancer. Um, So they measured expression levels of this ULNR Um, again, that's the long non-coding RNA. 
Um, and another long non-coding RNA called hot air. And they showed that women without a history of breastfeeding had a higher expression of ULNR compared with women with a breastfeeding duration greater than six to 24 months. And That's this relationship, fast. interestingly, yeah, interestingly, the relationship became more significant with an increasing duration of breastfeeding greater than 24 months. Wow. Um, so to just to understand, because again, this is very basic science um, these long non-coding RNAs um, are a group of RNA molecules with more than 200 nucleotides in length that are transcribed from different regions of the genome. And the reason why they're so important with this topic is because they have regulatory roles in cell proliferation, differentiation, cell migration, and the cell cycle. And they likely play a role in different stages of breast cancer development through oncogenic and tumor suppressor roles. Hmm. Um, and they also, um, ULNR in particular, plays a key role in the proliferation and viability of tumors. Um, and therefore, they likely play a role through estrogen-dependent reproductive factors um, that are linked to a high-level expression of ULNR. So um, it probably has to do with upregulation of some estrogen-independent um, proliferation genes as well. Hmm. Uh, so it's really that biologic plausibility um, sort of explanation. It's always great when we find out underlying reasons why we observe things in epidemiologic studies. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's where all of cancer treatment and um, care is going at this point as well, that it's not everything is individualized and we're trying to just understand all the molecular mechanisms between the behavior, you know, underlying the behavior of different types of breast cancer um, different risk factors, different genetic risk factors, epigenetics. So it's, it's really a really interesting time for, for people to be working in this field like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I tell people, like when I'm, when I'm giving lectures about research in breastfeeding that, or in anything really, when you're looking for a real relationship between a finding like this and outcomes, if there's more of it and you see more of the effect then you can say that it's probably related so if you see less of this activity with more breastfeeding then there's got to be some relationship between it's less right less of this less of this activity with breastfeeding then you right you can say that this is more of a this is reflects a true relationship rather than just uh you know, just observed, find, yeah. something that's observed, right? Yeah, so that's right. really, that'll be exciting to see where this takes us. And, and then I guess the next thing is like to be able to modify that at some point. Um, yes. Yeah. But right, because you see this, you see this kind of research, and it's so encouraging about the relationship between breastfeeding and the reduction in breast cancer risk. But then the problem is when you also see that women who breastfeed for long durations still get breast cancer, um, then that's when you, you wonder how all the individual characteristics of different patients modify what they see on a more of a population level. Right, 
right. with some of these molecular changes. I mean, every time I operate, <laughs> I had someone that I said, oh, I actually, you know, it's uncommon that I have to take out the calculator and we have on our intake form in our, um, in our breast, uh, in our cancer center, um, for our breast cancer patients, they, um, part of the form is how many months did you breastfeed? And so most of the time, unfortunately, you know, it's like three months or one week or, you know, sometimes six months. And someone recently had, I think, 63 or 68 months of breastfeeding. And I said, oh, it's great when I have to get out the calculator and right. divide that by 12. Um, and sometimes those, a couple of, I've had a couple of older ladies recently in their 70s who had actually breastfed for years and years. And I gave them my little magnet that says, thanks mom for breastfeeding. I said, you have to put your kid's picture, even though they're grown in this magnet. Um, and generally those women do have, you know, lower grade, more indolent estrogen positive tumors and not the aggressive triple negative breast cancers that we know are actually associated in some populations, particularly um, African-American women with a, a shortened duration of breastfeeding. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, just uh, for, our, for our audience, um, since we have you here as a breast surgeon, I have heard a, number, a few different ways of describing the reduced risk of breast cancer with breastfeeding, such as like 4% decreased risk for every 12 months or 25 or 12 months. Yeah. Years. yeah. What stats do you use when you describe this? That's what I, I cite that statistic of it. I think it's 4.5%. Is it four or 4.5% per 12 months okay. of breastfeeding? Um, but I think that the thing that people need to realize is that is all comers. And if you have your first child after the age of 35, your, breast, your risk for breast cancer is permanently increased as compared with women who never had a child. Okay. So that has to do with all of that postpartum breast cancer literature that I, I you know, there's different, you know, new stuff coming out all the time, but um, and I think just recently in JAMA, in was it JAMA? In December, um, there was another postpartum breast cancer um, uh, article published, but um, it has to do with the fact that the breast is undergoing changes during pregnancy and then involuting for the very long period of involution that occurs 5, 10, up to 20 years postpartum. So that's just set back in time. So if you have your first baby at the age of 18, at 20 years, your breast is appropriately quiescent. But women are undergoing that involution process at older ages when the breast is, you know, biologically should be more quiescent. I see. So oh, um, that's really important. I mean, as much as I want to say that breastfeeding protects you from breast cancer, I think it's a really complex um, it's a complex discussion between age and, you know, number of children and total duration of breastfeeding, family history. You know, we know that, that breastfeeding protects BRCA1 patients, but not BRCA2 patients from breast cancer. We know that the reduction in risk for breast cancer related to breastfeeding is highest in those patients with a first degree family relative, a family member who had breast cancer. So, it's more complex. And I think that it's actually these molecular mechanisms behind breast cancer development and, you know, increased knowledge about 
really these factors that's going to help us understand the true relationships rather than some of these epidemiological studies that may be a little bit, um, the data is not as clear mm-hmm. or, or mixed. And when you talk about the articles about postpartum breast cancer, you're referring to, is it the same thing as saying the pregnancy-associated breast cancer? Is that the same? No, so that's what, um, no, so there's a, you know, a, a group of researchers there, I mean, in, in more than one place, but Colorado, Oregon are some of the bigger centers, um, UMass, um, that, pregnant, that are arguing that we should redefine what our traditional um, pregnancy-associated breast cancer, which traditionally has been defined as breast cancer diagnosed while pregnant and up to one year postpartum mm-hmm. into true cancers that occur while someone is pregnant versus those that occur in the postpartum period. I so see. they found that those cancers that occur while women are pregnant have the same outcomes as those women who are you know, not pregnant and not postpartum. But the postpartum status is a three times increased risk for metastatic spread and death. Hmm. Oh, so that's, that's a- the actual, that's the part that raises the risk. And we're learning more and more information about the involution of the breast. And that has to do with whether you're breastfeeding or not. So once your body reverts to its pre-pregnancy state, all that tissue remodeling that mimics a wound healing environment and there's increased lymphangiogenesis from all of the, the normal lymphangiogenesis that we need to breastfeed and drain all that extra, you know, fluid in the breast. Um, but that is what actually promotes that early metastatic spread. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. But yeah. And yeah, the, um, the tumor beds are actually even different than a tumor bed of a woman that isn't postpartum. Interesting. Huh? Wow, there's a lot to learn about that topic. We'll have to yeah. bring yeah, yeah, bring that in for another podcast. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Anything else about that about the article? Um I don't I don't think so. They they did find that um hot air was not the its expression was not um related in terms of reproductive and non-reproductive factors of the study. So you, Eleanor, was kind of their biggest, biggest finding. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to move on and talk about another article. Um, and this is actually an article about autoimmune diseases and prolactin. Um, it's entitled Prolactin, Autoimmunity, and Motherhood, When Should Women Avoid Breastfeeding? And it was published in Clinical Rheumatology in December 2018, a couple authors, last names are Bora, Borba and Schoenfeld. And so you and I both take care of a lot of women, and it's pretty startling to see how much more common autoimmune diseases are among women as compared to men. So you probably take care of very few men because men don't get breast cancer very often. Um, but I know as a family doctor, I see a lot more autoimmune disease in women. So so particularly things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and Graves' disease. Um, and this seems to be particularly true among women who are fertile. So for example, the ratio of females to males among patients with systemic lupus erythematosus, which we'll call lupus throughout uh, this podcast, is actually nine to one uh, uh, females to males. 
So it's understood that female sex hormones play an important role in this difference in autoimmune disease risk. And the authors give reasons for this, stating that women have higher immunoglobulin levels and increased antibody production, production, I'm sorry. And they also have a higher rate of rejection of rejecting a tissue graft, which I had no idea of. Um, hmm. Yeah, the rate of diagnosis for autoimmune diseases actually increases during pregnancy and postpartum, which are times of major hormone changes. And that's something that I share with my patients all the time when we talk about, you know, why do things happen at a certain time? And I just share like, well, you know, we do see a lot of Graves disease postpartum and we'll yeah. see, you know, yeah. Graves occur during pregnancy. Um, right. So and idiopathic granulomatous mastitis is also, we see that in young postpartum women. Yeah. And that's, and which that's is thought uh, to be autoimmune related. Yeah. Yeah. One possible reason why women differ from men is because women need to be immunologically tolerant of, the, of a fetus. So that's why there are so many ultra, so many changes that happen with the immune system for women. Uh, the authors describe a general overview about hormones and immune and the immunity that estrogen and, per, and prolactin are considered immune stimulants, whereas progesterone and testosterone actually suppress the immune system, which I think I find it pretty interesting that they said that because for years I've noticed as a family doctor that when I have a family come in and the kids are sick, they're puking or they have fevers and mom is sick too, like dad's never sick. Dad's hardly ever sick. And I'm always wondering, huh. like, why is that? Maybe because dads are not home as much. Um, but uh, I think it's <laughs> because of the difference in hormones. Um, so huh. when, That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So when women become pregnant, um, the placenta actually secretes various substances to prevent the maternal immune system from rejecting the fetus. So the immune system actually tends to weaken a little bit. And that might be why women are more prone to more severe disease, con more like severe consequences of diseases. So we know that women are kind of immune, we kind of consider them immune compromised during pregnancy and they're more prone to right, have for sure. like, yeah, like influenza pneumonia or pneumonia from chickenpox. And then, um, and there, it seems like their allergies get a lot worse too, from my experience, or like if they have environmental allergies. And then towards the end of pregnancy, the immune system actually has to rev up because there has to be some degree of inflammation for labor to occur. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the authors reviewed um, various inflammatory diseases and the effect of prolactin on these diseases because prolactin is very pro inflammatory. So, first, they talk about lupus. And the, they report that studies find that there's higher prolactin levels among women with lupus and that, the higher, that there's a correlation between the degree of prolactin and how in, the activity of their disease. And huh. we know that lupus seems to flare during pregnancy in association with higher estrogen and prolactin levels. So that's actually, so some things flare during pregnancy and other things don't, but lupus is one that does flare during pregnancy. And um, some studies have shown that if women are given bromocryptine, which will reduce the prolactin level, mm -hmm. um, the lupus symptoms actually improve. And then the patients actually require less steroid therapy for their lupus. Whereas other women, particularly women with rheumatoid arthritis, they improve during their pregnancy. And that's thought uh, because the placenta also puts out steroids um, to dampen down the immune system. And those steroids are probably helpful 
for women with rheumatoid. So they're less symptomatic during their pregnancy, and then it kind of gets worse um, postpartum. And that hmm. worsening of their uh, rheumatoid arthritis postpartum is thought to be due to the hyperprolactinemia without having the steroids to kind of counteract that because prolactin is still really high during pregnancy. Um, and in fact, they cite an epidemiologic study that found that the more pregnancies and the more number of years a woman has been breastfeeding, the worse her severity of rheumatoid arthritis, which I've never, which I have to say. <laughs> That's that, terrible. I know, but I just, I just wonder about that because I don't know, it seems like the disease modifying agents are so good these days that it's really my old, like my, my patients who are in their 70s and 80s who have all the deformed joints from rheumatoid. My younger patients don't have that at all because they start the disease modifying agent so early that their joints seem to be in pretty good shape as long as they've had access to ongoing medical care. But anyway, on the other That's hand, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then multiple sclerosis is another issue. So multiple sclerosis is also considered an autoimmune disease. And there is strong evidence that breastfeeding will protect multiple sclerosis and that there are fewer exacerbations, um, especially the longer a mother, a woman breastfeeds, the greater this protection of lactation from multiple sclerosis exacerbations. So it seems like for MS, the elevated prolactin levels don't play a role. Um, and then another disease that they talked about was postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is a disease that tends to affect women towards the end of pregnancy or in the first few months postpartum. And that's when women will have, for those of you who don't know what this is, women develop heart failure, meaning that the heart is not pumping, um, is not pumping as well as it should be because the muscle's inflamed. Um, and people are not really sure what the actual cause is. It seems like it's multifactorial because studies have shown that um, this may be partially viral. It may be partially autoimmune. It may also be associated with low selenium levels and may be exacerbated by elevated prolactin. And there's been strong evidence in studies that using bromocryptine to reduce the prolactin level um, is effective to improve the postpartum cardiomyopathy. So, so the bottom line in this study, in this article, this review article, is that they have a table and it lists five diseases, lupus, the antiphospholipid syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic sclerosis, which we didn't talk about much, multiple sclerosis, and postpartum cardiomyopathy. And they say that of these diseases, lupus and postpartum cardiomyopathy have the greatest evidence uh, regarding the relationship between prolactin and disease activity. And they actually say that for women who have lupus or postpartum cardiomyopathy, that they should not consider breastfeeding. And they even say- Wow. I know. And they even say- Who, who, who funded this who study? Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I can say- You know, that. I think that's, geez, that makes me real. My mom has lupus and thanks mom for breastfeeding me. You know, because yeah, right. wow, that's the kind that sounds like that advice could be misinterpreted. This article could be misinterpreted and possibly put in the wrong hands. I know. I, I that's, mean, that's why I bring it up. I, that's what are the risk benefits of not, you know, how, what are they, what are they measuring disease activity? Are they talking about someone going into kidney failure or, you right. know, a difference in fatigue levels? And what does that outweigh the risk of the baby of formula? Right. And I would say, right. And, I, and I'm just going to add too, they also, cons they also consider telling women 
who have rheumatoid arthritis to not even breastfeed because of the risk of flares postpartum. And I totally agree with you mm. because I would say, first of all, and this is just an N of one, me as a physician, but I've been in my practice for, I've been practicing for like 30 years. And of all the children in my practice who've developed autoimmune diseases during childhood, every single one of them was formula fed. I have not had one who's been, who's been like fully breastfed for a couple of years. Yeah. So I yeah. really, so I think, so first of all, breastfeeding is helpful for the child who has that one strike against them with a family history of autoimmune disease. And then you have these mothers who have autoimmune diseases and if they don't breastfeed, they have the risk of insulin, of insulin resistance. They have the higher risk of type mm-hmm. two diabetes, stroke, heart attack, hypertension, none of which they need, right? So if they're at risk for lupus nephritis, kidney inflammation, it doesn't help for them to have hypertension anyway, or have all the other illnesses with not breastfeeding. So, and I would say too, that um, in terms of like rheumatoid arthritis, it's so clear to me that the disease modifying agents make a big difference. So I do have, you know, I see a number of women who are breastfeeding, who have rheumatoid arthritis, and they stay on their disease modifying agents. So they're on hydroxychloroquine, sometimes a really low mm-hmm. dose of methotrexate, which is considered safe, mm-hmm. and sometimes Enbrel, which is the tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, they do fine, and they don't have any symptoms, and they're not dealing with any flares. And so I, I would think, in my mind, the, so these medications are considered safe. So to me, it makes sense that they would stay on their disease-modifying meds and breastfeed and have sort of the best of both worlds um, rather than telling right. I agree. I think I'd take this with a grain of salt. If not, I, I probably wouldn't want to spread it around too widely for it to be misinterpreted. Because again, yeah, my first question is who funded this study? Right. And I, I think that, I mean, it, it could very well be true. And I think some of the basic science of the prolactin levels is really interesting. But I also think you have to look at the emotional component of the, uh, you know, how much of how much breastfeeding offers protective benefits against depression and anxiety. And so many of these women with, with autoimmune diseases that they've suffered through in their, their younger part of their, you know, adult lives or even later teenage years, that it's, it's a nice benefit for them to be able to breastfeed and bond with a baby. And they may have had a more challenging pregnancy and a higher risk pregnancy. And if they're producing enough milk and they're healthy and the baby's healthy, that I, I think it's, geez, this is, I think it's an interesting, interesting yeah, I think article. Like, I think it's like really so focused on prolactin. And then they also mentioned in there that prolactin is actually secreted by several other tissues besides the pituitary. And so then the question is, what are they measuring? You know, which prolactin are they measuring? And is it actually the, is it the prolactin from the pituitary that's really the culprit? Um, so anyway, it's... Right. It is, and why yeah. didn't they look at other autoimmune like Crohn's and... I have a Crohn's patient that's doing fine breastfeeding right now. Zero yeah, flares. They do do fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, they just talked about those um, because that's because they don't, they don't do a lot. I don't know. Our rheumatologists don't do a lot of Crohn's management. It's mostly GI. Mm, so, Cause GI. Unless yeah. they have Crohn's arthritis. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so um, should we move on to another article? Sure. We could do the one that we both read. Um, the fertility treatment use and breastfeeding outcomes. Sure. So it was, I think it's going to be published soon in ACOG if it hasn't already been published. Um, so this is from 
I believe this is from the CDC, right? This is from the CDC um, in Atlanta, and it is a retrospective review. Um, and the objective was to report breastfeeding outcomes, which they define as initiation and duration, but we'll get into the duration part of this because, as you know, it wasn't uh, tracked very long among women who conceived spontaneously versus those who used fertility therapy. And that is defined as assisted reproductive, uh, is it assisted reproductive technology or assisted yeah. reproductive therapy, a technology, right? Technology, Sorry, this is yeah. a little bit outside of my field. Yeah. Um, IUI, which is intrauterine insemination or fertility drugs alone. And they reviewed the PRAMS database, which is the Pregnancy Risk Assessment and Monitoring System that provides data on maternal behaviors before, during, and after pregnancy. They use the PRAMS database from four states, Massachusetts, Maryland, New York, and Utah, because these are the only four states to include data about receipt of fertility treatment, as well as the type of fertility treatment. Um, the mothers received. And overall, their study showed that mothers who conceived using assisted reproductive technology, again, that means eggs or embryos are handled in the lab for the purpose of establishing a pregnancy, which is essentially in vitro fertilization, um, may breastfeed for shorter durations than mothers who conceive spontaneously. Though, when they control for the increase of likelihood of multiples and infants born preterm, this is no longer a significant finding. So they had a sample of 15,615 uh, patients. The exposure of interest, again, was the women's reported use of fertility treatments. The outcomes of interest were breastfeeding initiation, which was either a yes or no answer, and any breastfeeding at eight weeks. So again, we'll come back to that duration issue because they only looked at duration to eight weeks. Um, and then the women were, again, grouped in these three categories of um, assisted reproductive technology, IUI, or drugs alone. And then the PRAMS outcomes of interest were um, these questions, did you ever breastfeed or give pump milk to the baby, yes or no? And that was even for a short period of time they were supposed to answer yes or no. And if yes, are you currently breastfeeding or giving pump milk? And then if no, they wanted to know how many weeks or months the, um, they had given um, pump milk or breastfed. Um, so 5.8% of these women can see with fertility treatment, which I don't know. And I thought this was interesting because there's a 15% national rate of infertility as far as I understand. So yeah, this definitely yeah. wasn't a generalizable Example. Yeah. Um, and that might, is that how you understood that? Right. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I have to think about that because they do say at the beginning that it's 15% of women between the ages of 15 and 44 experience infertility, but maybe a lot of them don't go on to actually get pregnant. So these are, of course, women that pregnant. got pregnant. Yeah. Maybe that's a difference. Pregnant and had them. Right. Um, and these women that conceive with the fertility treatment, um, as we know in general with infertility data, were more likely to be older, white, married, educated, give birth to multiples, and have a preterm infant than women who conceive spontaneously. 
Um, and again, the main finding was the odds of breastfeeding at eight weeks were lower for assisted reproductive technology than spontaneously. And um, this was not significant when they controlled for the increased likelihood of multiples and premature infants. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, like I said, I think it's important when we were talking about this before that we're discussing this topic, but it mostly left me with more questions and more ideas about where we really need to be with these studies than the information that was provided here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a survey to begin with, but the other thing is that we we know that women who have a history of infertility, like you described, they tend to be more educated, older, higher educated, uh, higher income. We have probably have the strongest set of intentions because all those demographics fall within high intention of breastfeeding. And then of course they've been waiting for this baby for so long, right? And they're paying big bucks. So they want to take really, you know, they want to just give breast milk and be really successful. They're driven. And um, so we don't know how, what their volumes are. They don't, they don't talk about, they don't correlate volumes. And so these might be women who are willing to, you know, just pump for two ounces a day or 10 ounces a day. So we don't, that's, I feel like that's where we need more information. What is the effect of actually having um, in vitro fertilization, particularly with hormone support that has to happen during the pregnancy? Um, does the estrogen right. that's used um, or sometimes steroids or whatever else is used to support that, that implantation and fetus, how do they affect, you know, breast development and volumes? Um, right. Because- I think the volume question is really, really important. I think the fact that they, they call duration eight weeks is really important because that is exactly the time that a really motivated mom is going to be, say, pumping to eight weeks. But then if you look at her at seven months, is she still pumping? And if she is, how much volume is she pumping? Is she using any herbals or domperidone to facilitate that volume? And that's important. And for me, mostly, I wanted to know the reasons for infertility. And they do acknowledge that as a limitation that it's, is there male factor infertility? Is there no male partner? Um, But among the women that did have a partner and didn't have male infertility, is it PCOS? Is it diabetes? Is it premature ovarian failure? Is it other autoimmune disease? That is where I think we need to understand the correlation between infertility and how we counsel these women postpartum and how we prepare them during pregnancy for realistic goals and, you know, the, the health of the baby as well and the safety of the baby. I think that's right. where we get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, because I think clinically what we're offering right now with, right. I think clinically we're faced with women who come in, they have a low supply. It's not like they have zero milk. Um, but they have a low supply, and then we're trying to figure out, like, why is it? And if they have a premature infant, it's understood. Or if they have multiples, it's understood. Right. You know, all those stresses. Right. But even with prematurity, you know, many women do uh, reach high volumes pretty early. And then are they blunted because of, is it just their age? Is it, is it something that happened during breast development because of the uh, hormone support, you know, what is that? And so, yeah, it doesn't really um, help us clinically 
with, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, I don't think we can say from this article that if we see a woman with a low milk supply at three weeks postpartum who was an infertility patient, I don't think that we can say from this article that infertility has nothing to do with it. With right, nose. right. Plus the addition of multiples. I mean, just even yesterday, I was talking to a friend of a friend, you know, 39, long, long history, you know, eight years of infertility and PCOS and miscarriages in the past and now 34 weeks pregnant with a um, with twins. And, you know, all I could think of was twins, you know, born premature PCOS, like this is going to be a challenging situation, regardless. And how do you tease out which, (laughs) which is the most influential factor, they all are probably equally influential, but you also see PCOS patients. I mean, I don't know if you've had these in your clinic, but I've had PCOS patients with almost like an oversupply at times. Yes. Sometimes you do. So that's a really challenging diagnosis, I think, where, but I think it's, we have to get to a point where we're recognizing and, you know, the, these babies are born in baby friendly hospitals and there's lots of support, but also, you know, like you said, the, and as this article acknowledges, the, the internal pressure to breastfeed, but making sure these babies are safe at the same time and the moms are supported. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's a interesting, interesting article. I think, you know, they did mention in the article that there was only one other study on this topic. And so there it's a very, it's an area that's really poorly studied. Um, There was only Mm -hmm. one other study and that was just a study that was done within one state. So there's, there's lots of, that's kind of a wide open, field for someone to look at them more closely. Right. And I think honestly, the infertility, the, these OBGYNs that work in infertility, the, I'm blanking on the name of their specialty when they do their fellowship training. Oh oh, yeah. Reproductive. No, it's not maternal. Yeah. The the REI, REI. I really think this is where we could utilize their, their assistance. These people could, could, I mean, I guess obviously they do have a document of the reasons for infertility, but to be able to extrapolate that and track women postpartum and, and quantify volume would be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. When we, and we have talked, we actually tried to get a grant for that, but then we realized that the population that you study in, in, in an infertility clinic is way different than the United States because you don't have... You don't have people of color very much. You don't have right. people of, right. of uh, lower socioeconomic classes, et cetera. So it's kind of a, it's, it's tough, you know, to generalize from that population. All right. Well, I'm going to um, talk about our last article, and this is actually about HIV. So we've had discussions before on the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Listserv Uh, about HIV and breastfeeding in the United States, where some people have said that they have patients where their infectious disease doctor said it was okay for the mother living with HIV to breastfeed. And so, uh, and I thought that was interesting because it's so variable. So I found this study um, entitled, in the United States, we say, quote, no breastfeeding, unquote, but that is no longer realistic. Provider perspectives towards infant feeding among women living with HIV in the United States. This was uh, the study was conducted by several authors um, through Johns Hopkins and the University of California in San Francisco. 
So the authors first start off by saying that the current recommendations by the AAP and the CDC for women living with HIV in the United States is blanketly to not breastfeed. But then studies done in low resource countries where women living with HIV are encouraged to exclusively breastfeed, they have found a zero to 3% transmission of HIV when the mother and the baby, when the mothers and the babies are taking antiretroviral therapy a mother's taking it during pregnancy and then during breastfeeding and the baby's taking it while breastfeeding. So uh, women in low resource countries are encouraged to breastfeed because of the risk of infant illness and death from clean, from lack of clean water and the risk of malnutrition being so much higher than the risk of HIV transmission. Right now, the World Health Organization is recommending exclusive breastfeeding. So in, in low resource countries, the World Health Organization recommends exclusive breastfeeding for six months and then actually continuing to breastfeed for 24 months with addition of foods at six months while the mother and the infant continue antiretroviral therapy. The authors of this study state that women living with HIV in high resource countries like the United States, Canada, various European countries feel stigmatized by not breastfeeding and that they wor they worry that it might reveal that they are HIV positive, particularly if they come from a culture or a family where breastfeeding is the norm. And they also feel some guilt and shame. So that's based on some of the research that they mentioned. They also mentioned that there was a recent change in the United States perinatal guidelines and the British perinatal guidelines recommending uh, that providers provide a harm reduction approach for women living with HIV who do want to breastfeed. Although they should still counsel women that form of the feeding is safest, but also not, you know, um, halt the conversation, but actually provide a harm reduction approach. And that means counseling the mother on adhering to her HIV treatment, giving the baby antiretroviral treatment, and monitoring them closely if they're gonna breastfeed. Um, so what this, what this study is about is that the researchers conducted an online survey to providers who are part of an international reproductive infectious disease listserv, but they only invited uh, people, providers from the United States to participate. So they got 93 providers with 70% being female. And uh, they also did a little bit of like qualitative interviewing, asking them some other, like doing some specific interviews, but mostly this was a survey. About 45% of the participants were OBGYNs, and, um, and then the rest were either adult medicine, infectious disease, and primary care, and then some pediatric providers. So this is what they found. They found that 21.5% of the providers offer counseling and assistance with breastfeeding, that they will actually do an open-ended question, how do you plan to feed your baby, or are you going to breastfeed? Well, let's talk about that. Well, 16% Say the Wait, you said only 20% yeah, talk about only, breastfeeding? Well, actually, 21% will actually, like, have a conversation about it and be open about it and, you know, kind of explore mother's goals and things like that, whereas 16% say that they advise no breastfeeding um, and won't even discuss it any further. And then there's this in-between group that, that will say, look, you need to formula feed and they'll listen to the mother, but they won't give any advice on like how to make breastfeeding work and reducing the risk of transmission of HIV via breastfeeding. But instead, they'll 
they'll talk about things like, you know, they'll, they will express empathy. They'll discuss how to pretend that you're breastfeeding. Um, and um, about 37% said that they'll counsel on banked donor human milk use. They did say about 75% of the providers said that they have had the experience of working with a mother who's living with HIV, who asked to breastfeed, and 29% had the experience of caring for a mother who breastfed despite their recommendations to not breastfeed. Um, so 50% That's pretty high. The, yeah, it is pretty high. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's happening. That's the thing. Um, yeah. Among the women... Um, who asked to breastfeed and who breastfed despite the recommendations to not do so, 50% of those had immigrated to the United States. So if they come from a country where breastfeeding is very much the norm, they're more likely to proceed and breastfeed no matter what the, physician, what, uh, what the provider says. Um, and the then though, did those women exclusively breastfeed and were they taking antiretrovirals? Uh, they they didn't say like exclusivity because it was a it was a survey among providers, so they probably didn't. Oh, okay. that. Yeah. Um, okay. The providers were asked what they thought were the issues for the mothers who were asking about breastfeeding, and their perception was that um, the patients' concerns about not breastfeeding were the stigma from their family and community, and they were also worried. Mm -hmm infants were not would not have the health benefits of breastfeeding hmm. and then they asked um about they asked the providers like what are you worried about if the mothers are breastfeeding and 70 percent of them said that they were worried that the mother would not be compliant with her anti-retroviral therapy while she was breastfeeding and then 65, oh, that's interesting yeah and 65 percent said that um they still worried about transmission of hiv even if they were taking their antiretroviral therapy uh, regularly. And then um, a certain percent also was concerned that, were concerned that it would be very difficult to make sure the infant is taking the antiretroviral therapy regularly and you know, not refusing or spitting it up or something like that. So just that act of, you know, you know how it is giving medicines mm -hmm. to kids. <laughs> right, geez, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so. but, but I would think though that it, but if the mom's levels are undetectable and she's compliant with the antiretroviral therapy and she's exclusively breastfeeding the baby that won't have, you know, if there's mixed feeding, I think that would potentially make me more concerned, but it sounds like that World Health Organization recommendation has changed, right? I thought that in the past it used to be exclusive breastfeeding, and then once the baby started to have introduced other foods, that's when the transmission became higher. Yeah, yeah. And so now... And um, so now with the control of the antiretroviral drugs, they feel comfortable with low or undetectable levels and the baby and mom compliant with antiretroviral therapy that they can breastfeed as long as they want with complementary exactly. foods. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so about 22% of the providers were concerned about the legal risks of potential HIV transmission, like they were worried about being, you know, losing their license or something like that. And then 62% um, of the providers said that if there was a government clinical guideline that condoned breastfeeding for HIV mothers um, who have consistently undetectable viral load, they would work with the mothers. But without a clinical guideline, they, they don't want to. 
Um, and then this article is really, this is a great article because it goes more into depth about like, like that harm reduction and the ethics of having double standards for breastfeeding with one standard in high resource countries and one standard for women in low resource countries. But I'm not going to go into detail on the ethics portion because it's a pretty long discussion. And this is my, our opportunity to put a plug in for our conference <laughs> um, at the Victorville Ranch uh, for providers this year, uh, May 29th through June 2nd. Um, so that's Victorville, that's uh, the, camp, the Campbell Kemper Ranch in Victorville, California. So the reason I mentioned this is because we're going to talk about this further, and uh, we all are interested in getting our um, ethics SERPs in. And uh, so this is going to be a topic, one of our topics in our journal club. Um, and this is a very cool ranch. This is a rustic ranch in Victorville, California. It's beautiful. It has a really great veranda, which is where we're probably going to spend a lot of time. And we're going to continue this topic about um, HIV and how to counsel women who, are, um, who have uh, those undetectable viral loads, uh, the, the ethics of working with them, um, while we are also um, enjoying some moonlight and perhaps some libations and some really fantastic company. So if anyone's interested, check out the IABLE website at lacted.org and check on events. And uh, it's going to be great with great company, lots of fun. Um, and you're going to be there too, and which is super exciting. Yes, I wouldn't miss it. I think it, uh, Ottawa was amazing, amazing last year. And um, I think it's just, it's such a great opportunity to have, you know, great clinical conversations and a lot of, uh, we're doing a lot of uh, case studies again this year, right? Yep. Um, case studies and some hands-on. The case conference. Yes, yeah. yes. And some hands-on work, and you're so, going to bring your um, ultrasound machine to show how to do ultrasound. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm so excited that people are interested in that. Plus the other, I've learned so many tricks from my physical therapist. We really, really value them in cancer care, and I think there's such a role for them in um, in the lactation world also. So I'm excited. People are excited about the ultrasound and other things like. My, my physical therapists do cupping and the K-taping and um, lymphatic massage. Like I said, if there's one thing I can un undo, is it's deep tissue massage. It should not happen on the breast ever. We talk a lot about that at the, at the conference. But I would also say we had the people who came to the Ottawa conference were just great people. We'd had so, it was such, it was like being with, it was like a big, if we all stayed in the same place, it would be like a huge sleepover with like your best friends. And, and this is going to be a true sleepover with our best friends because it's just going to be us at the ranch. So it'll be. Yes. Fun. Yeah. I yeah. think the setting looks awesome. I think we may go to try to go to Joshua tree before, cause that's Memorial day week, right? That's yes. That's Memorial week. Yeah. 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 So I think it's going to be a super fun getaway too. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, Katrina, uh, thanks so much for podcasting with me and uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, hopefully those of you out there in uh, Cyberland will join us at the ranch. All right. Sounds good. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at laughed.lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, 
our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.